What does it mean to thrive in your world? As educators, do we really understand how we can link what it is that we do to a sense of purpose, of people, of place, of practice that's really informed by helping our students to develop the character, competencies and wellness that will assist them to thrive in their world? Will our students develop the adaptive expertise and self-efficacy, which means that they can respond together and put it all together in a way that really matches the needs of our time and further on from that? How do we separate ourselves from the hustle and bustle of the everyday and get ourselves in a position to look beyond and to look up? I can't wait to get into this next series of Game Changers. Are you thriving in your world, Adriano? Let's go. Well, Phil, it is wonderful to be with you again, of course. How is the uh, second best city in the country treating you currently? Well, you know, situated as I am in one of the two best suburbs of the world, Wallara, <laughs> the other being, of course, Fitzroy, um, you know, we're recording in, in sort of mid-September at the moment and things aren't too bad in Sydney. People are, are being sensible on the whole and, uh, you know, managing things. My heart really goes out to uh, my friends and my colleagues in Melbourne and, of course, with the situation of the lockdown, just talking with clients earlier today about that and, their, their, you know, what, it, what it's like to be in that sort of situation for what seven weeks now to be contemplating another five six weeks of these sorts of restrictions going forward i know adriano that while this has been going on of course uh and while you've been shouldering the burden uh, personally of of lockdown you haven't allowed yourself to be constrained you've been doing the most remarkable travel around the world virtually and attending and presenting at professional development events and workshops and conferences all over the world. It's in your nature to do that because you're a big hearted follower and you like to contribute in that sort of way. I know that travel is really, really important to you. Why, why is it so important to travel? Why is it so important to you personally to be such a world citizen? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question to, to start this off around our theme of, you know, are you thriving in your world? For me, you know, travel has always afforded me the gift of time and savouring kind of patient moments of encounter with myself, with place, uh, with my God, and of course, the other. And for me, this notion of setting out is an adventure where I kind of pause and reflect on the profoundness of time. And so much of it centres around uh, the spaces in between. So obviously, you know, working and then there's, there's this notion of travel or vacation. And sometimes travel is not a vacation, part of, part of your work, but then you come back to your reality. And for me, travel is, is always that kind of space in between where I'm able to kind of raise my eyes a little bit and really consider what my ultimate horizon is and do that in, in, a, in a way where I ask myself some of the deepest kind of questions about what, how we measure success in life, how we measure happiness, Obviously, you know, in the Western world context, we've kind of reduced everything to simply numbers or units to define success or, or most forms of measurement are a tool for kind of control. But, but that's not how I kind of look at things. And, and travel affords me the opportunity to start uh, allowing the profoundness of divergent thinking and the ideas of others, language, culture, food, religion, all types of things that make up a thriving society and people to, to really contemplate then those, 
going, coming back to those questions about what matters about what we measure. And of course, often I've had wonderful experiences in locations around the world where, where people who have the least are the ones who give the most, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's the, the, the capacity to give is not defined by what you have. It's what you choose to do with what you have and what you can contribute to those around you, I think. At the same time too, you know, I just, I, I think, and, and you know this, mate, it's, for me, life is an adventure. You know, every part of life has to be exciting. Every part of life for me is about stepping forward into something and you might not know every part of it. You might not have every detail planned in advance, but there has to be an exhilaration that comes with discovery and with exploration and with finding yourself at the same time as finding other things. Yeah, you know, that leads to me to an encounter I had back in 2014. Uh, I had the privilege of exploring the great Catalonian city of Barcelona, uh, you know, this large uh, metropolitan city uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. I spent five glorious days in this, in this totally inspiring destination post me completing the kind of Camino de uh, Santiago pilgrimage. Did you, again, did, you, did, did you do the full trip? No, look, let's be serious, Phil. I was never going to be doing all like, what, 900 kilometres. That's a nonsense. I did, I did the bare minimum that is required to qualify for the certificate, not because I'm lazy. It's because I actually did it during a two-week school break. So I flew over. That we, we finished on the, on the Friday and I flew to, to, to Spain on the uh, Friday night. I then got from Madrid. I took a seven-hour train ride to Saria uh, in, in the northwest. And then I, I commenced my pilgrimage uh, over 110 kilometres. Uh, and I did it within the seven days that I had. And then recuperated on the Saturday. And the next morning flew to Barcelona with every intention on, on watching a uh, live Barcelona FC game. But the game was postponed till the next day, which I couldn't attend. And so, interestingly enough, serendipitously, there were some ex-students of mine in Barcelona at the time, and I gave them tickets that were basically sitting right behind the bench of the Barcelona team. And these ex-students just thought I was God by giving them these, these prime sit tickets. Right, because they basically about no man than to hand over his well, tickets. I was, I, was, I was dying about doing that because I was desperate to see it, but I had to then attend the conference the, the next, you know, on the Monday uh, in Barcelona. And so... I gave it to them. They were in arm's reach of Lionel Messi and, and uh, Luis Suarez and, and those type of players. So anyway. If only, if only I knew who they were. <laughs> well, the world does. And that's all that really matters. Um, okay. But, you know, coming back to, to Barcelona, you know, it's, it's a city that, that I know in 2021, Phil, you'll be presenting at with a number of our member schools at the IBSC conference, which is really, really exciting. And props to you for, for having that opportunity. Two workshops really looking at uh, character in partnership with our member schools. Uh, I just think you're going to have an amazing experience in, in a, a dynamic destination. What else can I say? I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be awesome. One thing that struck me instantly in this, in this city is their commitment to kind of the artistic expression and the creative uh, architectural buildings and public spaces. Barcelona is this dynamic cultural city, proud of its artistic heritage and a colourful way of life. During my time in that city, I spent many days simply just exploring all things Antonio Gaudi. His mark has kind of imbued not only every surface, but the psyche of Barcelona. I believe his work is, is much part of the soul of Barcelona, as is their own kind of Catalonian language. 
salsa and the vibrancy of this dynamic road called La Rambla. Throughout this entire city, Phil, when you get there, you're going to encounter unusual and abstract artworks that are predominantly associated with Gaudi's inspiration. His creations are continually being built and celebrated and rightfully so. Gaudi kind of pushed the aesthetic norms by sampling different art movement features to design a unique and kind of innovative approach to his construction. And of course, one such creation is Gaudi's awe-inspiring Basilica de la Sagrada Familia. Construction commenced in 1882, and this masterpiece is not due for completion until 2026. I mean, that's just simply remarkable, that length of time. When I, when I recall my encounter with uh, La Sagrada Familia, I was sitting in the pews, and, and I paused, and I looked up at this grand structure. And for the first time in my life, I actually fully encountered the notion of cathedral thinking. La Sagrada Familia is one of the one of a hundreds of impressive churches or cathedrals built over hundreds of years, including, of course, the Basilica at, at San Pietro in the, at the Vatican, which took 120 years to complete. Another favor of mine is the Duomo di Milano in Milan, Italy. It took approximately 600 years to complete. And despite living in different places and eras, all the architects who created these structures shared a similar approach, now coined cathedral thinking defined by the act of undertaking a visionary long-term pursuit that requires decades of foresight, purposeful design, and generations of motivated workers to complete. And what is also clear is that cathedral thinking doesn't subscribe to the notion of a one-size-fits-all approach, really embracing what we have been on about for quite some time now, the best of fit-for-purpose kind of paradigm learning. So the provocation is really this simple. Is cathedral thinking merely wishful thinking? What can we do as a society to once again stretch our time horizon so that we give greater weight to the future, including a future beyond that of our own? Can we really do cathedral thinking for a future fit education? Oh, it's such an interesting question, Adriana. It's a great provocation. You know, it's one of the things I've been thinking about quite a lot um, and uh, over, the, over the past few years is about the philanthropy that's been done in so many American schools and colleges where, you know, 400 years ago, someone decides to give some money towards scholarship. Um, and that's how endowments build over time. And the only way that you can do that, be it an American school or a British school, and some of the British schools have got even older endowments uh, and, and some of the clients we've worked with, the only way you can do that sort of endowment is if you're prepared to give money with no payback in your lifetime whatsoever because this is just something that you do for future generations. I was on a visit last year to one of those schools uh, in particular, and then to speak to a conference, and then to visit some new schools within our network in the United Kingdom, and I came across Winchester Cathedral. It's a place I'd read a lot about when I was a boy, and at that stage I had a real interest in the kings and queens of England. It's probably the, the, the little Ladybird series of history books that we got at that stage. Um, but, you know, I was mad keen about those sorts of things. And of course, Winchester was very, very important in Anglo-Saxon England. We know that win work on Winchester Cathedral was begun under the direction of Walkerland, then Bishop of Winchester in 1079. And it was completed 14 years later. It's one of the largest cathedrals in Europe and is longer in length than any other Gothic cathedral. It's a really beautiful building. 
It's stunningly ambitious for its day, and it has a relevance that endures. Unlike the cathedral in Barcelona, we don't know who the mason was who designed and built it for Wakefield, nor do we know the names of the team of great artisans who did this work over this period of time. Neither do we know who were the architects of the various additions and renovations over the 940 years in between when the first stone was laid and when some bloke with a beard lobbed in there last year after a nice pub lunch with a mate. Now, my mate's mind was elsewhere on that day, but once we stepped across the lintel, suddenly a combination of the size, the scale, the beauty and the history of the place took over. A couple of hours passed in no time at all as, as the past informed the present and in do, doing so, it, it changed the future. For both of us, we gained a new appreciation of the possibilities of the creation of enduring legacy through design, which merges people with place and purpose with practice. Whoever the people who built Winchester Cathedral were, their enduring impact on the imagination of those inspired by their work nearly a thousand years later is profound. It transcends the superficial and gets to the heart of what really matters in how we live, how we learn, how we lead and how we work. It is, of course, the manifestation of character in action, in bricks and mortar and in the lives of those who are touched by these long lasting artifacts of possibility. So Phil, this is, this is super, super interesting, this conversation around cathedral thinking and, and what you've just shared there about that particular structure in, in the UK and the space in between its finish, its use, and of course, how people continue to encounter it today. So Phil, what are the hallmarks then of such great architecture? I'm, I'm going to offer... Uh, a layman's view of this. I think you're actually probably well more qualified. And I know my father, who was an architect himself, would have been much more qualified to answer. But from my perspective, as the user of such architecture, it's got to be sturdy. It's got to be built to last. The resources have to be allocated and spent in such a way that goes beyond an immediate return to those who provided them. In many ways, the funding of such an enterprise is an act of philanthropic intent rather like that which we talked about just a moment ago. Mm -hmm. It may well take hundreds of years to secure the interest in such human capital, and this requires great strength of will to resist the temptation to seek immediate and self-centred gratification. It must be very, very functional, servicing a combination of social and personal needs that operate on individual, communal and societal levels. In doing so, it must do more than simply fulfil a narrowly prescribed purpose. It must advance the purposes that different generations of people have identified for their communities over time. It's got to bring people together rather than divide them. It's got to provide spaces for quiet reflection and contemplation of something well beyond the experience of a single person in the world, and yet must also allow voices to be heard and join together in practical and symbolic ways. It must seek to inspire in a way that its aesthetic touches our souls, and yet it must also bring very tangible benefits to it. It's really interesting, Phil, because you know, what I'm hearing you share with our listeners today is a definition of being inclusive. Absolutely, absolutely. And that inclusivity applies particularly to the way in which it brings value to all of us. Because we can't see everything that characterises this sort of architecture, but we all have to recognise and feel enough immediately to see that it is valuable to us and we can also bring value to it as well. 
We have to learn where we can to see beyond what's in front of us to identify a new potential to bring value to others and ourselves. And, you know, even old bricks and mortar can be a home to ideas that bring hope for a better future. And we may well discover that some of those ideas might not be as near as they appear. There is nothing new under the sun, we're taught in Ecclesiastes. You know, the past is not the automatic enemy of the present and the future. And even if we see injustice and damage caused by some who lived in the past, what we can still do is assemble enough of the good to build the architecture of the future, which is drawn from lessons from the past of what to do and what not to do. And in this way, I think, and I know you too, too, mate, that an education that instinctively leans into the future, a future fit education always acknowledges and is informed by a balanced appreciation of what's come before it. Such an education and those who work in service of it need to use cathedral thinking to lift their eyes up from the everyday, from the urgent and immediate tasks that absorb them and to think deeply about the road ahead and how to best prepare people for, for the changes that this is going to bring to their lives. You know, assessment tasks and excursions and risk assessments and syllabus documents and phone calls and emails and meetings, they're all important in the everyday, or some of that is anyway. <laughs> but far more important is the challenge to establish schools that genuinely anticipate the need to help people to thrive in their world throughout their lives. And they're going to need to equip their students with the adaptive expertise that allows them to select solutions, both new and old, to the problems posed to them by their changing circumstances and the self-efficacy that allows them to organise their character, competencies and wellness to make this happen in the best ways possible for themselves and for society as a whole. Yeah, I, I love what you're sharing with us. And, and so much of what you're sharing with us continues to be congruent with everything that you and I have spoken about and written about, not only through our toolkits on the website, and of course, now in our dynamic online platform and Monday circulars and so on. Uh, and, and in particular, this podcast, because everything you're talking about is a human-centered ecosystem and one that leverages the inherent humanness of each individual and understands that uniqueness of them. And that should be the focus going forward of this kind of cathedral thinking that we're going to be really advocating for in this particular prologue. Absolutely. Cause you know, it's, it's not just about what we're doing now. It's about what's in front of us. And in our lifetimes, we've witnessed a more rapid improvement in the condition of humanity across the planet than any generation before it, particularly with the rapid advent of modern science, of medicine and economic changes that have seen drastic decreases in disease and poverty, particularly over the last 20 years. But our world still has got many challenges that are going to extend well beyond those we're experiencing in 2020. We have climate change, We've got the rise of artificial intelligence. We've got population growth. We have the challenges of globalization and a world that connects with each other rather than a world that stays apart. We've got resource scarcity in energy and water. We've got the resistance of pandemics in our era of global travel and communication. And we've got the ongoing quest for fairness and compassion in human relations and more. All of these require thoughtful contemplation of the evidence at hand 
courageous, principled and far-reaching decision-making and a process of solution architecture whose structures and attention to detail allow for concurrent resilience and robustness to address not just immediate challenges, but also longitudinal and intergenerational growth, progress and success. We need cathedral thinking if we want to move from surviving in the moment to truly thriving on our journeys from yesterday to today and tomorrow. And where else might we learn this cathedral thinking first, but in our schools? Schools and entire educational systems are facing pressure to adapt to an increasingly uncertain future shaped by rapid advances in machine learning and new disruptive players. And at the same time, they're looking for ways to succeed in a purpose-driven economy where governments want and expect schools to help solve some of the world's most pressing social, environmental and economic challenges. It's not just about content that exists in a vacuum for its own sake. This is the social contract of education, how we in education can help our students develop that sense of purpose, which will enable them not only to thrive in their world, but to contribute to it so that new generations of these purpose-driven young people can become part of the solution to many of these mega trends that I mentioned earlier, reshaping society. How else should we think of schools, but of educational cathedrals? So, Phil, I come back to my original question. Can we really do cathedral thinking for a future fit education? I think we can, Adriano. I think that cathedral thinking is remarkably relevant for today's educational context. Cathedral thinking can and it should be used by learning communities as a tool for imagining and planning for the future, infusing long-term flexibility, strength and purpose into the school's learning architecture and helping each young person in their care to find meaning, movement and motivation individually and together through contemplation of something beyond themselves. And it goes well beyond just what I reckon we see this in the work of the game changers all over the world. Time and time again, we see people who not only have their hands up to their elbows in the grit and grime of every day of making learning work, but somehow they've worked out how to step back and look up and beyond. This is why the whole of learning is so important and a whole educational framework that best prepares students to thrive and succeed is essential. This is why a future fit education looks to the whole work of a school and its necessary purpose of preparing young people to thrive in their world. Now, we know that thriving means human beings who have that adaptive expertise and self-efficacy I've talked about a few times already now to apply their character, competency and wellness to learn, to live, to lead and work. And we know that we want them to be able to do this as good people, as future builders, as continuous learners and unlearners, as solution architects, responsible citizens and team creators. So Phil, I'm really glad that you've taken us to the whole of learning and, and ultimately to the question, are you thriving in your world? These six graduate outcomes you speak of are what emerged from the past decade of research by the team from A School for Tomorrow and its research arm, CIRCLE, the Centre for Research, Innovation, Creativity and Leadership in Education. They are the desired outcomes for a future fit education, which becomes possible when cathedral thinking is used to design and create the ecosystem or the framework for the whole of learning. And, and I think it's really important to kind of unpack these six graduate outcomes for our listeners considering so much of series four of the Game Changers podcast is going to explore the lived experience of each of these. So can we start with good people, Phil? 
Yeah, sure. And, and you know, if Mr. Adams, our senior partner uh, in charge of educational research and development right now, were here right now, he would remind us that in many ways, the graduate outcome of good people is the one that sort of, it's the umbrella that sits over everything because good people want to be people of good character. And inspired by meaningfulness, they demonstrate the mark and measure of a person of integrity who can navigate our world with civic behaviours that are characterised by respect, by civility and consideration for others, performance comprising purpose, persistence and reflection, and a moral code informed by courage, honesty and humility. Now, these good people are committed to becoming virtuous. They have a coherent set of values and beliefs that guide them to do the right thing and to live a good life as best they can. And that's their ethics. They use honesty, responsibility and courage to the best of their ability because none of us is perfect, particularly in this space of trying to put into place impossible values like honesty and responsibility and courage. But they have enough of these to show the character required to stand strong in the face of adversity and place the needs of others before self-interest. They do their best to align their values, their dispositions, their actions and their consequences. They constantly work towards improving their character and they recognise that this competency in character involves demonstrating integrity by aligning values, dispositions and actions associated with this civic performance and moral character that I talked about earlier. This relies on the capacity to demonstrate quality and consistency in fulfilment of obligations to others, reaching potential and acting in accordance with fundamental beliefs about what is good and right to do. Good people, therefore, are grounded in learning about character that helps them acquire knowledge of how individuals and communities construct their sense of identity, values and ethics, their skills in encouraging civic performance and moral character in themselves and others, a disposition towards building the beauty and discipline required for a purpose-driven and virtuous life, and the capacity to reflect on the integrity of their character competency. Yeah, I agree with you about it being the, the kind of overarching one of, of, of these six. It has to be kind of the essence of, of ultimately who each person is to make the others work. And that kind of takes us then to the next graduate outcome, which is future builders. You know, future builders want to be leaders for the future, inspired by authenticity. They have the reflectiveness, sensitivity and the strength to manage complexity by honouring the legacy of yesterday, attending to the needs of today and looking forward to what tomorrow will require of us. They are willing to become dedicated leaders who translate vision into a shared story of progress and human endeavour. While many leaders, including some in our schools and education systems, just concentrate on the operational demands of the present, well, the reality is future builders dream of tomorrow. They honour yesterday and they attend to today while simultaneously getting up onto the balcony and seeing beyond the immediacy of their horizon to what living, learning, leading and working tomorrow might look like. They use patience, judgment and insight to build the narrative that helps us to forge a path towards this preferred future and brings others on this particular journey. They justify what we need to do and how and why we should do it in a particular way. They seek to communicate effectively. They understand the communication competency involves explaining the complexity that is at the heart of a 21st century or 22nd century leadership for the future through constructing compelling narratives for continuity and change over yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
This relies on the capacity to address different audiences and purposes with clear and articulate expression that is well-informed, reliable, and of course, persuasive. You know, Phil, they are grounded in learning about narrative that helps them acquire knowledge of how to motivate, influence, and direct the actions of others towards willingly achieving a shared goal. Skills in communicating with others about the object and subject of their leadership mission. A disposition towards maintaining a focus or this kind of notion of holding the line on the long-term vision and the capacity to ultimately reflect on how they use their communication competency to speak to complexity. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we, we, we ended at that place with complexity because that very naturally leads us on to the, the notion of the next graduate outcome, which is about how we learn in a complex world. And that is, of course, as continuous learners and unlearners. Uh, continuous learners and unlearners prepare for a lifetime of learning. And that includes the unlearning and the relearning that will be required along the way of the pathway to excellence. And, and inspired by transformation, they inspire growth by helping us to make sense of the volume, pace and intensity of our times. Continuous learners and unlearners seek to be equipped to become dynamic learners who are committed to continuing growth and improvement throughout their lives. They use the power of harnessing their curiosity, resourcefulness and adaptability to help us transform gracefully from who we are today towards becoming the people we need to be in the future. And they encourage others to become better at continually developing their competencies. They embrace change in their lives. They're aware that a change readiness competency involves acquiring ongoing personal growth and transformation through the adoption of a process of adaptive expertise and self-efficacy. And this relies on the capacity to take responsibility for learning from all situations with a willing, open and agile mind that can assemble and master a volatile body of knowledge and that is informed by past practice, current experience and the anticipation of future needs. They're grounded in learning about transformation that helps them acquire knowledge of approaches to learning that builds the self-efficacy and adaptive expertise. Skills and successful research, development and the implementation of new ideas, a disposition towards action, movement and taking positive steps towards progress and the capacity to reflect on the relationship between their change readiness, competency and their continuous personal growth. You know, Phil, the reality is though, they can't do it alone. So enter kind of the next graduate outcome, this notion of a solution architect. Solution architects aim to design and generate effective solutions to emerging problems and issues. You know, they are inspired by the intention of sustainability. They are equipped to provide direction supported by successful answers to the questions of the world that seeks clarity and certainty in circumstances that are rapidly evolving and multidimensional. They are motivated to become committed coaches who think carefully to generate practical and workable answers to challenging questions. They use grit, perseverance, and attention to detail to give others the confidence to meet expectations by thinking through options and constructing, testing, implementing, and evaluating solutions to familiar and unfamiliar problems. They show others a better way forward by charting a course toward a better normal and a shared understanding of excellence. They think through problems with confidence. They know that critical and creative thinking competency involves eliciting direction through asking significant questions and developing solutions that meet expectation and sometimes exceed expectation. 
This relies on the capacity to use conventional and innovative processes of reflection for the analysis of alternative arguments, the evaluation of evidence, and of course, the creation of content. They are grounded in learning about expectation that helps them acquire knowledge of tangible models for achieving desired processes and product outcomes, skills in considering and evaluating a range of possible options, a disposition towards assessing the impact of solutions on the basis of both evidence and judgment, the capacity to reflect on the success of their critical and creative thinking competency in giving appropriate direction. Not every solution will be new, but all solutions will be crafted from an abiding curiosity about the world and an inclination to simply try new things. They never want to stand still and they never want to accept that the status quo as the inevitable model or a process of simply doing things. So then we move to the impact of the responsible citizen. Responsible citizens are sincere contributors who are prepared to put the common interest and the needs of others before themselves. Now, inspired by service, Adriano, they have that balanced perspective that you always show that's informed by a desire to create belonging, achieve potential and do what is good and right in ways that bring value and values to enterprises, including business, joint ventures, service entities, government and not-for-profit organisations in local, regional and global contexts. They're dedicated to serving others. They use a positive approach, a sense of greater purpose and a long-term vision to encourage us to drive our activity beyond our own immediate concerns to a shared intent. And they give hope to others to discern and meet their responsibilities with assuredness. They contribute positively to their communities and they appreciate that citizenship competency involves balancing the perspectives that come from the local, the regional and the global and the intent that arises from each of these perspectives by recognising, identifying with and contributing to different communities. And this relies on the capacity to appreciate the rights and the responsibilities that flow from interconnected social, cultural, economic and environmental contexts. They're grounded in learning about intent that helps them acquire knowledge of the needs of others and how to best meet them, skills in discerning pathways, systems and processes that grow others and nurture our environment on our journey towards a preferred future, a disposition towards promoting shared goals and culture over personal ambition, and the capacity to reflect on the balanced perspective of their citizenship competency. And so we come to our final graduate outcome, Phil, team creators. You know, team creators know how to build and work well within their teams. Inspired by relationships at the heart of everything that they do, they have the ability to create human-centered collaboration meaningfully, compassionately, and productively in ways that bring out the best outcomes for all of us. They are inspired to become honorable colleagues who recognize our common humanity and work to enhance it. They use respect, kindness, and appreciation for individual enterprise and shared endeavor to give us the sense of team and generosity of spirit to conquer the sense of isolation and alienation that divides people and organizations. They engage and work with others toward a common goal through the strength of their empathy and competency to listen, a deep consciousness of the other, so to speak. They work well with people, all people, because they know representation matters. They realise that collaboration competency involves bringing a team of people together in a community of inquiry and practice through building coherent and relational systems and processes that respect all voices. 
This relies on the capacity to work effectively, responsibly and respectfully for and within diverse teams towards the accomplishment of shared aspirations, goals and of course, learning. Team creators are grounded in learning about teams that helps them acquire knowledge of how people live well in community with each other, skills that support positive interactions between individuals and groups within a community of inquiring practice, a disposition towards achieving shared goals for wellness through processes that enhance collective connection and coherence, and finally, the capacity to reflect on the relational quality of their collaboration competency. You know, when I look at all of this, Adriano, and, and, and all of these graduate outcomes, which have been drawn from our own research, what I'm curious about is how well this aligns with the broader world of educational research that's emerged over the past decade. Well, Andra Schleicher, the director of the OECD's um, education and skills kind of uh, area, recently published this article titled Back to School, Back to Learning, Education in the Midst of COVID-19 Pandemic. And in his article, he stated the following, and I quote, we need to change how teaching is done by capitalising on technology to make learning more engaging, more personal, and by combining lessons with independent work and one-on-one -on -one coaching, as well as connections with classmates. Such blended learning opportunities could really make a difference. Education does not have to be a one-size-fits-all model. Now, I believe the idea of cathedral thinking, Phil, can be applied to, to this blended learning opportunity that, that Schleicher speaks of. Because a personalised, fit-for-purpose learning ecosystem is about supporting each young person to become truly future fit, emotionally competent, agile and adaptive in today's world as they build the necessary sustainability for generations to follow. You know, Phil, humans are fantastic in their ability to simply dream, to plan ahead and to look toward the future. Think of Leonardo da Vinci conceptualising the idea of humans being able to fly a full 400 years before pioneers such as Montgolfier brothers, Lawrence Hargraves, and the Wright brothers realized Da Vinci's dream, each building on the other. Yet for some reason, we get, we get stuck into this kind of rabbit hole of the small details of today that keep us from the big ideas and reaching for the ideas we want. We settle for what is and think we cannot change the future. Cathedral thinking flies in the face of the small distractions of today and imagines that we can indeed dream big. And by small actions today, advances ourselves toward amazing goals and achievements, envisioning a future we would want to, for our children and of course, their children's children. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear you talk about that, Adriano, because you know, it's, people can look at this notion of cathedral thinking and think, who me? Is it, can I really do this? Oh, it's just little old me. Or, you know, this work can operate in many different ways and across different fields. And, you know, back when I was in year 10, or as, as it was then called back in the dark ages, fourth form, I wrote an essay on the Australian scientist, Howard Florey, um, who really intrigued me because he, was, he wasn't, if you like, a great man of history. He was a servant of those around him who quietly and diligently got about his work and then subsequently was honoured with a Nobel Prize for Medicine in recognition of the discovery and development of penicillin. Talk about a game changer. You know, not 20 years before the prize was awarded, the 16-year-old son of the American president, Calvin Coolidge, played a game of tennis on the White House courts wearing sand shoes without socks. Now, young Calvin Jr. got a blister on his toe, which very quickly turned into sepsis, and he was dead a week later. You know, in 1924, the President of the United States couldn't stop his own son dying from blood poisoning 
20 years later because of Flory and Fleming and all of the scientists, both male and female, who took part in the process, suddenly we had a way to live when previously it was too easy to die. We take for granted the game-changing effect that antibiotics have had on sustaining our lives and life expectancy. So sometimes cathedral thinking can take place quietly behind the scenes with scientists like this doing this work. And sometimes too, it takes great bravery. You know, I think of Marie Curie and the discovery of radium, uh, you know, and, 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 and the personal sacrifices she made to advance human knowledge. If we move into the field of civil rights, you know, Rosa Parks comes to mind, you know, for her persistence and the bravery that's manifested in an action, you know, that's as, as simple as sitting in the front seat of a bus. Mm. Who'd have thought that that could have such a powerful and long-reaching consequence that eventually the United States Congress would call her the first lady of civil rights? You know, without a scientist or a citizen who's willing to perceive the future of humanity itself as being the cathedral and taking the personal risks associated with making a breakthrough, we can't take the steps forward into the future we need. And this is why cathedral thinking is such a powerful tool for human-centred design everywhere in society and especially in schools. Yeah, I really, really appreciate you sharing some of those examples of, of individuals who took it upon themselves to understand their responsibility in being future builders. And, and I probably didn't necessarily think about their work having this echo in eternity as it does today. And I particularly think of the profoundness of what Rosa Parks did, considering we're in the midst of civil unrest and the height of Black Lives Matter. So I kind of want to then return to the, the start of this prologue, Phil, because it's the cathedral thinking that has left us with inspiring structures, systems and solutions and people that continue to captivate generation after generation. Incorporating a cathedral mindset can spark new life in education, provoking a shift from a focus on the status quo of what's comfortable and familiar to long-term shared creative value propositions that truly realises education systems that promote excellence and equity of opportunity for all, including, Phil, those that are not even born yet. It's all about part of taking the big step forward and up into this kind of new social contract of education that connects our purpose with our practice through a greater understanding of our people and, of course, of our place. We challenge anyone to find a more compelling reason not to adopt cathedral thinking to shape today's learning for tomorrow's world. For the sake of today's COVID children, and of course, for those of future generations to come. Thank you, Adriano. Uh, your, your big heart just continues to inspire me. If cathedral thinking involves imagining the bigger picture of the future and taking that big step forward in a way that sustains the sort of humanity that you're talking about and that you exemplify, then our listeners will have the chance to hear that thinking come alive this series. There's no timidity and no default towards the status quo. 10 remarkable educators, social leaders and entrepreneurs will once again challenge our binary thinking and inspire us to reconceive the notion of schooling and commit to doing it both differently and better. You'll hear from each of them as they describe their journey and in particular what it was like to take the big step forward when they realised that they needed to do that which had not been done before. And you'll hear how each game changer has a deep understanding of the necessary character, competency and wellness needed by the young people in our care to thrive in their future. 
They'll offer us the exemplars of the learners whose mastery of the graduate outcomes can help us to reshape our own approaches to a myriad of things we do in school to help our students to learn, to live, to lead and work. Of course, our Series 4 guests are more than just brilliant case studies of thriving in our world. They're the right mix of educational and industry thinkers and pioneers who can help us to further this educational spring moment, to use your phrase, that we find ourselves in today, Adriano. And it's our hope that each of us, even if perhaps at first we see ourselves as just a small part in a much larger process, with little or no scope for influencing the course of events for the better, might come to see how when we look beyond our immediate circumstances and look up to the soaring roofs of our own cathedrals, we might then see why and how that bigger picture can and will eventually emerge. We might also see too how our thoughts, our decisions and our actions today can lead to remarkable consequences for the future. Whether we live to see it or not, like Gaudi or the unknown Masons of Winchester, others most certainly will and be grateful that we took the big step forward and up into the unknown with the courage to lead the way. I can't wait to share these stories with our listeners, Adriano. Let's go. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.